Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, October 29th, we are studying Amos chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. The Lord calls for a trial against his people Israel. Witnesses are summoned, evidence is presented, the verdict is guilty, and the punishment is coming. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Ryan Tonetti. Pastor Tonetti serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan. Pastor Tonetti, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. It's a pleasure. So, Pastor Tonetti, help us get started this morning by, by putting this text in its context. Give us any, any background information on Amos as a whole that's going to be helpful to, to us this morning, as well as any information on Amos chapter 3 that will help us put this text in its place within the larger scope of what Amos is doing. Sure, and I just want to underscore that how important that is whenever we're studying the Scripture, as your listeners know, context is so vital, and particularly in um, a lot of the prophecies of the Old Testament, you want to know what's going on, when is this happening, who who all are the key actors and players, so um, I find it helpful to think of um, when what are some of the contemporaries of the different prophets, so Amos is around the same time of Isaiah and Hosea, so we're talking in the 8th century B.C., in other words, um, the, the 700s B.C., um, and if, for those of you who happen to have a, a Lutheran study Bible, one of my favorite features of the Lutheran study Bible is it has a little time marker at, um, in each page. So uh, if you're following along with us in Amos chapter 3, you'll see that up at, at the top of it there, that uh, we're in the middle of the 8th century B.C., and um, Amos is prophesying, um, like Isaiah, against um, Israel and Judah, the kingdoms that are now in rebellion against God. And what we've heard um, in the earlier chapters of Amos is the prophet is really going after all of the surrounding nations and peoples who are in idolatry and in rebellion against the Lord. But chapter 3 is where things really ramp up, because uh, at the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1, uh, now the Lord takes his aim on his own people. It says, chapter 3, verse 1, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So now God has kind of turned his attention to his own chosen people. He says, I chose you out of all the kingdoms of the earth, and now, to whom much is given, much is required. And so um, God is going to really speak some harsh words here in, in the verses that we're going to be looking at today. Yeah, I mean, he really does ramp it up. And in chapter 3, you start dealing particularly with Israel. And I love your, your comments about the context and how important that is. And one of the things in the context that I think is going to be more important now as we dig into chapter three and following, is some of the more specific information concerning the nation of Israel and their economic and their political situation as a whole. And we've we've done a little bit of work with that here on Sharp Iron in the past, but not a ton. What what can you tell us about the nation of Israel, its economics, its politics that's going to be relevant as we start looking at the specific sins listed here in chapter three? Right. So the people of Israel had been um, flourishing in a lot of ways, and including um, economically. And we see that come out in some of the specific prophecies that Amos levels against the people here. And really this whole passage that we're going to be talking about, verses 9 through 15, is addressed to, um, as uh, my teacher and great commentator of Amos, um, Dr. Reed Lessing, the royal ruling class of citizens, of, of Israelites, who were living in Samaria in the northern kingdom. So these are people who are well-to-do, um, the uh, prophecy is specifically leveled against those who would be um, some of the elites and the leaders of the community. And so we want to keep that in mind as, as we hear this. These are folks who have been not only um, 
um, well off, but have gotten to that place as a result of, in many cases, uh, oppression, of putting down their poorer neighbors, and through that injustice have kind of feathered their own bed. And now, um, well, to, to stick with that image, the the uh, hen has come home to roost. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and just to underscore that a, a bit more, you, you've got a, a double combination there as to perhaps the surprising nature of Amos. It's surprising in the fact that he's speaking to God's chosen people, that he's condemning yeah. them for their sins. And then even on top of that, he's condemning those that many might look at and say, these are the blessed ones, the, the chosen of the chosen, the royal people, uh, the priesthood, as we'll see, maybe not in today's text, but, but later on, the upper echelon of society, those that you might look at materially and say, they are the ones who are blessed by God even of the chosen people, Israel, the harshest word is coming down on them. And so there's that, even another added factor of surprise, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I, I, it's so interesting to reflect on. I think that there is some application for us here as well as we think about, look, um, the, the scriptures challenge us. I've been reading Romans more recently, and you know, Paul talks about this in uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 in, in his letter to the Romans, um, saying, hey, you who would judge others, do you not do the same thing? And for the Israelites at this time, that's really the situation that they're in. For those who had thought, okay, we're the chosen people, we're all good, God loves us, you know, he, he has elected us to salvation, therefore we can kind of eat, drink, and be merry, as it were, and, and live as we please. But um, as it also says in, in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, take heed lest you fall, right? Um, that now God is saying, hey, don't think that you are somehow exempt from judgment if you are going to persist in unbelief and in lives uh, of lack of repentance, because now, um, and especially those of you who would be leaders, and as you say, those who have been materially blessed, now you especially um, need to turn your attention back to the Lord. Again, you think of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Woe to you who are rich now, um, for you are going to be uh, experiencing the mourning of those who've been poor. So it's uh, a challenging word for sure, and one that I think um, should strike a little fear and trembling in our own hearts. Indeed. Let's go ahead and read the text then and start digging in. Again, we're in Amos chapter 3, verses 9 through 15 this morning. The prophet writes, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. There's the, the text before us. And Pastor Tanetti, in my, in my introduction, I, I kind of set the scene because I, I think the picture that we can put in our minds just to kind of keep it all together is the the scene of a, a courtroom. Is that is that a fair assessment of this text? Yeah, it really is, and I thought you put that so well, that here it's like uh, the Lord is summoning together to witness against Israel the uh, strongholds in Ashdod and the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and it would have just been so offensive for the Israelites to hear this. The Ashdod was um, really the stronghold of the Philistines. Um, this is where they had brought the captured uh, Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 5. 
Egypt. Of course, these are the notorious enslavers of the Israelites. And so here God is, is summoning these ancient enemies of his own people as witnesses to testify against the Israelites. And there might even be um, a little bit of, you know, in the Old Testament, it, it teaches that there should always be at least two or three witnesses. That's um, quoted also in the New Testament. And so um, perhaps the Lord, in keeping with his own word, says, okay, we need a couple of witnesses here to testify against my people, and who should he pick but their ancient arch rivals? It's really just a, a tremendous scene, but it gives us a sense, too, of when we talk about justification, that's law court language, and we really see that law court vividly, um, almost on a cosmic scale here, as nations are being called to testify against the people of God. Is that, let me ask this question, is, is that fair that Ashdod and Egypt of all people get to, to stand in as witnesses? I mean, Ashdod in particular was singled out earlier in chapter one as, as having right. committed great crimes. How, how do they have the right to stand as witnesses against Israel? Oh, gosh. No, this is, this is a great question. And, I mean, of course, in a sense, they don't. I mean, judge not. You, they're, under the, they're under the same judgment. But I, I think that there is an aspect of this where the Lord is really trying to um, drill down how far his people have fallen that now they're going to have to hear that they're even a greater sinner by implication than these two nations, than these um, not only enemies of theirs, but ones that had been, uh, you know, notoriously anti, um, anti-God, anti-the Lord, the God of Israel. And so it's really reinforcing for them the sense of how far they have fallen. It's not to say, okay, that these guys are somehow better, but I think especially rhetorically, God wants to convey to them how serious their sin is, and the depth of their own fallenness from his ways. And so you get these, these two um, nations that, oh gosh, it could not have been any worse. I think of, um, this is Tim, this is uh, kind of dating both of us now a little bit, but I think back to um, the show Seinfeld, the, the sitcom Seinfeld, and in the last episode of that series, there was this courtroom scene where um, the characters, Jerry and Elaine and Kramer and all of them, were on trial. And one by one, they brought in all of these old characters from the show who testified against them. And all of their foibles, all of their failures were suddenly brought to light. That's kind of the picture that we're getting here, mm. is now mm. these ancient enemies of God's people are being summoned one by one in order to testify all the ways that they have been wronged by them. That, that's a fascinating example, and one that I don't think I would have come up with, but I think it, I do, I think it is a good picture in, in that, you know, when you think about the show Seinfeld, the, the four main characters are, quote, the good guys, right. and yet in that trial scene, they are exposed as the bad guys, as, as those yep. who have not done what is right, just as the people of Israel are doing here. And, yep. and as you, you, you said, the Philistines and Egypt— when you think about those who are the enemies of God in the Old Testament, those two are near the top yep. of the list, if not top the, the yep. top of the list. And so those two in particular right here, and they're told to assemble on the mountains of Samaria. Perhaps there's a bit of geography that you can fill us in that, that helps explain that comment. Right. So the mountains of Samaria, I mean, depending on uh, listeners who might be in Colorado will scoff at this kind of thing. But the mountains of Samaria, you had about a 300 foot up uh, vantage point from the valleys below. And so it's kind of a, a dual purpose here. On the one hand, it's um, uh, pointing out that this would have been a great vantage point in order from which to see um, the devastation that's about to be wrought on Israel. Um, but it's also because the mountains of Samaria were sort of the, the epicenter of the oppression. This is where many of these rich ruling elites would have been located. And um, so it's, it's sort of a both and there, that here's the place where if you, you can get your box seat of what's about to happen, but this is also the site of a, a lot of the uh, crimes committed against the Lord. So and I think, I think, I'm just looking back real briefly here, I think this is actually the first time that Amos has mentioned the city Samaria by name. We've, we've talked a lot about Israel, but we haven't said much about Samaria itself. What, what's the significance of Samaria? 
Well, this is uh, the, this is the headquarters of the Northern Kingdom, and so especially as we're looking ahead to the judgment that's going to be issued against um, the Northern Kingdom and the Lower Kingdom. So the Northern Kingdom, Northern tribes think of as being Israel. The Lower tribes, the Lower Kingdom would be the Kingdom of Judah. So Samaria was kind of the um, seat of, uh, if you will, the county seat of uh, the Northern Kingdoms, even as um, Jerusalem be the the seat of of Judah and the lower, um, the southern kingdoms, and so this is a, um, a core place politically, religiously. It um, served a, a vital role for the people of God in the north. So the the capital city is being called out here in verse nine. The witnesses are summoned, and then I think if we stick with the courtroom scene, it would seem that verse ten. Then the Lord, as the prosecuting attorney. Oh, now begins gosh. to present the evidence against his people there in verse 10. Oh, you're right, yeah. They don't know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Here, it's really um, a seventh commandment kind of conviction that the Lord's laying out here, um, that now you are storing up violence and robbery. But the um, the picture that we might have is people who had all sorts of storehouses of goods, of material possessions, but the Lord says, no, what you have in essence is a storehouse of violence and robbery. I say it's the seventh commandment issue because seventh commandment, of course, you shall not steal. And in the catechism we learn that's not just about taking stuff away from others, but it's it's also attending to the, the care and concern of your neighbor, ensuring that they have what they need. And this is exactly what was not happening by these leaders in the northern kingdoms, that they here they were uh, uh, oppressing their neighbors. And indeed, they were storing up for themselves, not even treasures, but they're storing up for themselves violence and robbery. It's even worse. And um, Pastor Apple, maybe if I could just say a little aside about money and possessions here in general. Yes, no, um, and I think that would be good because let me let me let me come back a little bit on, on what you're saying there. The the English text reads they they store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So, I mean, thinking just from a physical, you you can't really store up violence and robbery in a stronghold. Right. Is right. is the Lord accusing them of because they have stored up their wealth, they're storing up violence? and robbery or i mean how, what is and i think this is going to lead into what you what you want to go to but what is the relationship between storing up wealth and storing up violence and robbery because i think the people of israel would have just pointed and said well look we've just got a lot of stuff in our bank account what's so bad sure. about that right so th- i think there's two two sides to this one is um what is the source of your security and your confidence and we'll come back to this in, in a minute. I mean, that's really at the essence of it. What is the source of your of your security? Are these storehouses, is that in which you trust? And you think of a parable that Jesus gives in, in Luke 12, um, the man who says, oh, look, look how well off I am. I need to build bigger barns, right, in order to store all, all that I have. And uh, according to the parable, the Lord comes to him at night and says, no, your life is taken away from you and, and all your possessions. Whose will they be? So that's one part of it. The other part is, where, um, at whose expense are they procuring all of these all of these goods? And we get the understanding from um, the prophet Amos that this is happening at the expense of the uh, of the poor and the marginalized in their community. That their vantage point up on the mountain also has this kind of metaphorical meaning. It's like they're above the fray. They're up higher than all of the poor people down in the valley. And uh, so we we get the sense it's not just that they happen to be well off, that they've been blessed by the Lord, that they have been industrious, hardworking people. People and, and been prudent with their um, finances. It's that a they have uh, been trusting too much and find deriving security and identity from their possessions, from their wealth, and b that they are also getting that at the expense of other people. In both those cases, it's a, a flagrant violation of God's law. So the the to start to take your points in backwards order, then the second point is a matter of the seventh commandment, the the respect right. for the neighbor caring for his income and possessions as the catechism teaches us. Yes. But then the source of that, it's it's really a first commandment issue. Where are you placing your trust? Where is your security in this life, your confidence? Is it in that storehouse of wealth? Or, or is it the Lord God? And so, I mean, how do those two things relate, Pastor Tenetti? First, first commandment, seventh commandment. 
Yeah, so um, Luther so beautifully ties this together in the catechism, in the in the section on the commandments, in the way that he explains the, each of the commandments. So this is review for your listeners, I'm sure. But the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. In subsequent commandments, 2 through 10, and each of those, um, whether it be you know, honoring your parents, you shall not murder, or you shall not steal, in the case of the seventh commandment, um, Luther says, well, what does this mean? And each of those explanations begins like this. We should fear and love God so that, dot, 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 you know, so that we do not um, hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, fifth commandment, and then it will have a positive side as well. But by starting each of the subsequent commandments, 2 through 10, with we should fear and love God, it provides that tie-in back to the first commandment, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And what Luther is conveying there to us is the biblical teaching that ultimately all of these other commandments and all these other sins flow out of um, our faith or lack of faith in God. That, in fact, if we trusted, fear, loved, and trusted in God above all things, if we did that perfectly, we wouldn't be having any trouble with stealing or coveting or committing murder or so on and so forth. All of those are ultimately, if you were to think of it, um, to use like a, a computer analogy, they're like nested folders out of the one overarching folder of you know, first commandment. You click on that, and then you've got second, two through ten. Okay, um, they all are expressions of and ramifications from that first commandment. Where is your hope? Where is your trust? What are you leaning on? Where do you find your identity, security, and meaning? As our teacher, uh, Dr. Bob Cole, would would tell us, um, this is really the the essence of all of the commandments. So as we dig in then to that nested folder of the seventh commandment, that right. that begins to get a bit uncomfortable for us still today. Anytime sure. the scriptures speak about money, possessions, these are well, these are matters that you don't preach about, right, Pastor? You you don't preach about <laughs> money too much or you get into trouble. So yeah. but but thinking about money and possessions and how they relate to the matter of the first commandment and what the Lord is saying here in Amos chapter three, that his people have in storing up their treasures, have actually stored up violence and robbery. What is the salutary use of money and possessions, right. lest we store them up in this sense? And that, and that may be a hard question to give a, a an exact answer to for every situation right. here on the radio. But but how do you address that, Pastor Tinetti? Pastor Apple, I think this is one of the biggest challenges that as uh, American Christians we face. Because, let's be honest, we live in a, a very well-to-do um, culture and society. We've been blessed materially in so many ways. And so um, we can't just um, disregard this topic. We really want to, to get after it and go after it head-on and say, how are we to handle our possessions? How are we to um, um, take care of the good gifts that God has given to us in a way that honors Him and that also is um, spiritually beneficiary, beneficial? Because there's, uh, it's easy to fall off and to say, well, um, possessions are just bad in their own right and have sort of a simplistic view of it that way. Um, but it's a common place for pastors, preachers to point out that First Timothy 6 doesn't say that um, money itself is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil against that first commandment kind of kind of issue. And so we need to say, first of all, that money, possessions, material wealth, these are not in themselves evil or bad. That's not the problem. And as we all know, can be used for tremendous blessing for those who are in need as a, um, uh, a catalyst for mission and for um, the blessing of the church throughout the world. And so we want to be clear on that point. But at the same time, we have to recognize, hey, this, this can be a real challenge. There's a reason that the scriptures speak so often about our possessions and about money, why this is on the lips of Jesus again and again and again. Uh, Luther says in the large catechism that mammon, which is you know, that biblical personification of material wealth, Luther says that mammon is the most common idol on earth. There's something about money itself and possessions that can um, easily tempt us to put our hope, to put our trust and confidence in it. And so I think... Um, especially reflecting on Amos here, we want to recognize, hey, this can be a, a source of blessing, but it can also be a bane. Um, and the way I think about it is you might view possessions almost as like a hazmat. You get that impression from, from the New Testament that um, you know, 
possessions money is like a hazardous material. Um, it's not necessarily bad in itself, but it's something you want to handle with care. You need to uh, attend and recognize, hey, there are um, intrinsic aspects of our money and our possessions that we think, okay, this is where I can, where I can put my trust. Or if only I had a little bit more. Um, there's that wonderful verse from, uh, from the book of Proverbs, from I think it's Proverbs chapter 30, where it says, give me neither poverty nor riches. You know, I don't want poverty because then I'm going to despise you, but don't give me riches either because then I'm going to think, hey, I'm, I'm free and clear. It's living in that tension of recognizing we're stewards, that all that we have is a gift from God. All that we have comes from him. And so we want to handle it faithfully. We want to administer it for the sake of others carefully. We want to ensure that um, whatever we do with our money, as we're um, giving it to others, as we're using it for our our own family, for our own benefit, um, that we recognize in gratitude this comes from the Lord. Um, It's easier said than done, and as you had indicated, you know, all of the specific circumstances and, and different aspects I mean, um, we can't cover all of that in uh, a Bible study on the radio. I mean, these are conversations that need to be ongoing among Christian people. But suffice it to say, the money, the possessions, the wealth is not a problem, is not the problem in itself. But it's what do we do with it, and how does our heart attach to it or not? Because as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO as we study Amos 3, verses 9 through 15. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Tuesday, October 29th, we're looking at Amos 3, verses 9 through 15 with Pastor Ryan Tanetti of Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan. Pastor Tanetti, prior to the break, we looked at verses 9 and 10. The Lord calls his witnesses to hear the testimony against his people Israel. He has given that evidence in verse 10, and then in verse 11, it sounds like he's proclaimed judgment and verdict together. Uh, What do you see there in verse 11? Yeah, therefore, thus says the Lord God. So that therefore indicates to us that, as you suggest, it's kind of bringing things together now. Here's what's going to happen. There are consequences for your disobedience, for your sinfulness, for your, your lack of faith in God, and for your, the, the faith and the confidence that you have put in your own possessions and in uh, the things of this world. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. So there's this proclamation of an imminent judgment. It's um, still a little bit vague. God doesn't get into the the details here of what exactly this um, judgment is going to look like just yet, Um, but you you get the sense, okay, yeah, there is a, a, a military campaign that is on the horizon coming against Israel. And I think what we'll see, not only here, but as the the judgment continues into the coming verses, that even though the Lord uses an adversary, he's the one who's ultimately behind this, right? It's true, and it's it's a little bit intimidating um, for us to even contemplate the fact that God is the one who is ultimately standing behind all of this. He's going to um, use some of his proxies, ultimately in the people of Assyria um, when it comes to the northern kingdom. Um, but he wants to make it very clear. He's the one standing behind this, that um, their offense is not just against some neighboring nation. Their offense is against him. And so it's against him that they are going to be um, facing judgment and uh, uh, the, the punishment, the consequences that, that come with it. Hmm. Verse, verse 11, in terms of the, the verdict that's pronounced, the sentence that's, that's going to be carried out, is certainly 
uh, intense, right? That the defenses right. will be brought down, strongholds will be plundered. That's that's pretty bad. And I think you you could say that the the punishment fits the crime when you consider what was declared in verse ten that to bring down the defenses and plunder these strongholds, this is a fitting punishment for the crime. But that um, sanitized version of the punishment is put a lot more brutally in verse 12 there, Pastor Tanetti. Oh, goodness sakes. Yeah, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Now, we need a a little bit of background and context here because it just sounds strange. Um, But it says first, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear. So, um, Usually when we hear the image of a shepherd in the scriptures, that's a good thing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus is our good shepherd. But here it's using it in more of a negative kind of way. Um, If uh, a shepherd was out with his animals and one of them happened to have been um, overtaken by a predator, um, in order to demonstrate to uh, a neighboring shepherd or to somebody else um, that he hadn't stolen the animal, and this is um, spoken of in the, uh, the book of Exodus, it, it gives the, uh, um, the uh, stipulations for this, you'd bring as evidence the mangled remains of your animal to show, okay, it wasn't stolen, um, I, you know, it's been eaten, um, and all that remains are these legs or a piece of an ear, it says. And the analogy that um, God is saying through the prophet Amos is, this is how it's going to be for the people of Israel. All that's going to be left is um, a leg of a bed (laughs) or the ear of a couch, so to speak, the corner of a couch. In other words, this is just going to be the, the last scraps of the house of Israel. You might think of it like um, a house that has um, suffered a fire, and now there's just a few items have been recovered as a result of that. God's saying, this is what's going to be like, the devastation that will be wrought um, on the, the people of Israel. Only a few, only a small remnant will still remain, will still be trusting in him, will still be able to return to their home. And so it's a very vivid visceral image that can't help but convey to the people of God, this is about to get really ugly. So, it, I mean, is this verse good news or bad news or somewhere <laughs> in between? I mean, right. that, that's maybe, yeah. What do you, what do you do with that? How, how are they supposed to hear this? No, it's, it's, it's a tough question to answer because you think, how could there be any good news in there? I mean, this just sounds um, kind of sad and even a little bit gross. Um, but there is a, just a little glimmer of, of goodish news that's hiding in there in the um, assurance that a remnant will be rescued. Um, in the words of, of the prophet here, the corner of a couch or a part of a bed, which is to say there's going to be a, a small portion of the, the house of Israel that's still going to remain faithful. And this is a, a recurring promise not only in Amos but throughout the prophets, that despite the imminent judgment on the people of God, God isn't going to erase them utterly. He's not going to wipe them off the face of the earth. He's going to preserve a remnant for himself, a, um, a small believing group of people whom he is going to preserve who will still trust in him. So if there is a, a small silver lining in here, it is uh, the uh, assurance that, okay, there is going to be a remnant. The house isn't going to be completely demolished. There will be a little bit left. But, I mean, you can only imagine for the people of God when they first heard this, that was probably small comfort as they were staring down the barrel of uh, a neighboring nation that was going to come and issue this campaign and execute the judgment of the Lord against them. Yeah, it's not, although there is a glimmer of comfort, that's probably not the overall thrust of the words. The overall thrust is that what's coming is bad. Repent yeah. now before it's too late, even if it still comes. Um, I mean, it's almost like the, and is it? I think it's in 1 Corinthians 3, where, where Paul talks about sort of the, the work that's burned up, even if the foundation is left. I mean, is that a similar maybe image that, that the New Testament uses? I don't know. I'm just kind of flying off the, off the cuff here, but... Sure, right. Um, yeah, so 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about how um, 
if if anyone built with uh, wood or hay or stubble, the, that's going to burn up, um, but their work will remain. I mean, we could look at it from both an individual perspective and from a kind of a corporate perspective, from an individual perspective that um, at kingdom come, when the Lord returns, all of the, the dross of sin is going to be burned away. That all of the, um, the things in our lives that we had, had harbored and all of the, um, the things that we had um, trusted in erroneously, all of those things are going to be um, taken away. Um, but that the, the remnant of our, our believing um, heart, our, our body and soul redeemed by Christ, that is going to be sustained. There could be something to be said for that. But then also okay. in a corporate sense, the whole um, people of God, and I mean, indeed, all people on the earth, um, we, you kind of get that impression from 1 Corinthians 3 and indeed from the prophets that um, there will always be people who are trusting in the Lord, even as God's desire is that all would be saved. I mean, let's not mistake that. The fact that God wants all people to be saved. He'll say uh, through the prophet Ezekiel, I do not delight in the death of anyone. And so, you know, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we want to be clear that it's not the kind of thing where God just sort of has his um, precious little coterie of people that he sets aside and his atonement is just limited to them. But to the contrary, his love is for all people. Redemption is accomplished for all people. The question is just, will we in our um, sinful, stubborn hearts repent and believe this good news of what Christ has already done for us? And so that, that theme kind of carries over into the New Testament as well as from, from the Old. Yeah, and as, as other guests have said, the fact that God is still speaking to his people testifies to that fact, that, that sure. he wants them to hear and repent. Even, even as he speaks these harsh words to them, he does so for the sake of their repentance and faith, that they, they would hear and believe. So then verses 13 through 15 come together and, and begin to, to pick up on a theme, I think, that's there in terms of the the couch and a bed. These are items of furniture. In right. the ancient world, a couch and a bed would have been luxurious items of furniture. True. And, and a word that we're going to start to hear in verses 13 through 15 several times, and it's going to continue, is the word house. And it's going to be used in, in different ways. And, and you're going to start to see the, the riches, the luxuriousness that the people of Israel lived in brought to the front. And Amos is going to begin to to again testify against their sins for it. So so the first place you see house in verse 13 is this phrase house of Jacob, which the fact that he uses the name Jacob is probably significant. Yeah, it is. So, oh goodness, there's a lot here. So first of all, just briefly on Jacob. Now, um, your listeners will recall Jacob is uh, um, the name before Israel. So Jacob wrestles with this mysterious character in um, Genesis, I think it's Genesis 32, um, and he, you know, they, it goes all night long, and Jacob says, you know, I, I won't let you go till you bless me. And uh, then the the mysterious divine angelic figure um, uh, touches his his hip and gives him a new name. He's no longer Jacob, but he's Israel, which means one who who strives with God. But Jacob, the name Jacob, and we know how important names are, how significant they are for, um, especially the Old Testament imagination, was the uh, the deceiver. Right, he's the he's the conniving patriarch, and uh, I mentioned before, uh, uh, Dr. Lessing points out that um, Amos is, is is conveying here by invoking that name Jacob that the apple does not fall far from the tree um, in terms of the the Israelites here, they're sons and daughters of Jacob that they are still conniving and deceiving, and uh, I think it, those those thoughts are brought to mind here. But to that point about the house. And you're right, this is very significant, and um, Amos is, is using it in multiple ways, kind of symbolically, metaphorically, but um, at its most basic level, it's talking about the people of God. Um, you think of uh, going back to Second Samuel chapter 7, I think it is, um, where David is um, uh, dialoguing with the Lord and saying he wants to build for him a house by which David has in mind, you know, a place with some cedars, and it's going to be nice. Maybe we'll have a little patio, a place for barbecues. No. Um, but he's thinking of a, a physical place building with four walls. And the Lord turns that on its head and, and says, No, oh, David, I'm going to build for you a house, by which he doesn't mean a nice little cabin in the country. He means a people, a dynasty, if you will. Um, and so here 
um, houses being used in that um, larger kind of metaphorical sense, the house of Jacob or the house of Israel, talking about the line, the dynasty, the people of God. But as you alluded to um, later on in these verses, too, it's going to speak to some of those places of four walls, the winter and the summer house, um, which are emblematic of the ways that the house of Jacob has turned away from uh, God and, and failed to trust in him. And and so because of that, the Lord, it, and again, here, here we come a little more face-to-face with what we mentioned earlier, that the Lord is the one who's going to bring the judgment yes. upon his people. He says, I, on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions. He's also named the God of hosts, which in English is a not a very threatening term, at least not right. as I normally hear it. But I think as the Lord intends it here is carry some pretty big weight to it. Yeah, and I think, um, well, so the, the Hebrew word here is uh, sabaoth, which um, your uh, Lutheran friends are, are going to recognize from uh, the liturgy, um, holy, 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 Lord God of sabaoth, um, referring to the song from Isaiah chapter 6. So sabaoth is um, the, the angel armies. We can call it the hosts, but the um, picture is of... Uh, um, line upon line of angelic soldiers. And so the idea here is God as the, the commander-in-chief. He is the, It's a martial image, in other words. He, he is the one who is commanding these angel armies. And so it's a fearsome picture. I mean, if we think that it's not, you just recall how many times in the scriptures is there a, a great vision of angels. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, when the angels appear before the shepherds and in the immortal words of the King James slash Charlie Brown, they were sore afraid. Uh, this is a, a, a fearsome, frightening scene. And with God out at front of his host, out front of his angel armies, saying, as you mentioned, I will punish. I will do this. I will strike them down. Um, yeah, there is no getting around here. These are harsh, hard words of law from God to his people. You, you have a comment on these verses, Pastor Sinetti, that I, I want you to delve into a little bit for me. You, you say that this is a battle for justification, which I, I think is not maybe the way that I would have phrased it. And, and maybe some people reading Amos would say this is a battle for justice, because he talks mm-hmm. a lot about taking care of the poor. You say it's a battle for justification. What, what do you mean by that? Sure. Well, so uh, I mentioned earlier on where when we talk about justification, um, kind of zooming out here, when we think of justification in a theological sense, that's a way that we talk about how we are justified or declared righteous in God's sight through the um, blood of his son, through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Um, He died and rose again um, that we might be justified, that we might be forgiven, set free in God's sight. But it's very much this law court image and uh, I think it's one of those ways of speaking um, in, in the church or even in the scriptures that if you hear it enough, um, the whole metaphorical impact of it, it can be lost on us. We just think of it as another synonym for being saved. Um, but a text like this in Amos really brings home the full weight of what it means to be justified. What it means to be justified is to be in the courtroom. It's to be before the judge, knowing, in the words of the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, right? That we are utterly guilty, that we we can do nothing but plead the fact that we have failed. Or as it says, um, you know, in our, our confessions of sins, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so here in, in this passage from Amos, you get this image of the law court. As we mentioned, Ashdod and Egypt is being called as witnesses, and the people of God are being um, convicted and by the prosecuting attorney, the Lord himself. As he says, hear and testify. We get that sense of really what it means for us to be in the dock, as C.S. Lewis would have it, that we are the ones who are on trial here, and the, the conclusion is no wise in doubt. I mean, we are utterly guilty. But for us then to feel the full weight of the good news of that we are now justified in and through Christ Jesus, it's so important for us to hear and to really feel a text like this. And to sense, hey, we shouldn't just read this and say, man, that was really tough for the Israelites back then. But to recognize, hey, that's me. I'm in that law court too, and I'm no less guilty than they. But 
we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. And because of what he has done for us, now we are declared not guilty in God's sight. Because indeed, our advocate is also our judge, our Lord Jesus. And so that's kind of what I get at when we, we talk about justification. It is about justice and injustice. But in this broader sense, it's really about justification. Are the people of God going to be justified in his sight? Clearly, if they are, it's not going to be because of their own righteousness, or because of their own virtue. It's going to have to be because of the righteousness and virtue of another. Enter our Lord Jesus. That is such a helpful way of wrapping this whole text together. And again, to keep it in that law court image, when you put yourself in the seat of the defendant and you've heard all these accusations against you, what will you say? Right. How how can you defend yourself? And and ultimately, as you've pointed us forward to to First John, there's nothing that you can say on your own. You need someone to speak up in your defense, someone to right. put their righteousness in your place. And so that that is a very very powerful image, not only for this text, but but hopefully for the whole book of Amos. As as we've seen already, the book of Amos does not have much to offer us. It would seem in the way of good news in these first. Right eight and a half chapters. It's not until you get into, well, I guess nine and a half chapters. It's not until you yeah. get to the end of chapter nine that there's some very clear gospel comfort. But to to see Amos as putting us in the courtroom where we are left with no defense of our own, and we must trust the defense, the righteousness of another, I, that's just a fantastic way, especially for this text, but to, to help tie this whole book together and, and allow us to see Christ within it. So that that's that's wonderful. Uh, I, we can't we can't say it enough that for us to grasp the height of the good news of Jesus, we need to feel the depth of the bad news. And you got to say that the prophets, especially Amos and some of the other minor prophets, so-called minor prophets, um, they convey that bad news woof, in a way that's um, as sharp and convicting as anywhere in the scriptures. And it really gives us a sense of, you know, I've, I've mentioned the book of Romans a couple of times already, when it says in Romans 3, the law, um, the function of the law is that every mouth may be stopped, and every person, all flesh, be held accountable to God. Um, we could read that on its own and, and sort of understand the gist of Paul's argument, but against the backdrop of the, the scriptures more generally, and then um, the prophets in particular, you really feel that sense of, boy, we are guilty. All have sinned. None are righteous. No, not one. We need help. We do, and and it's found in Christ our Lord. Pastor Tanei, before we, we've got just under six minutes left, and I want to let you hit a little bit on verses 14 and 15, and in particular the idea of houses again as it's used there. And it in the English, you see it very clearly, the houses that are mentioned multiple times in verse 15, but the word house is actually in verse 14 as well. It's there in Bethel. The word Beth in Hebrew is the word house, and so Bethel yeah. means house of God. So, I mean, what is, what is Amos doing here with the houses, and how is he using that to convict the people of Israel of their sin? Well, so, yeah, there's, there's uh, uh, quite a bit here in these verses. So um, Bethel had kind of a notorious um, history for the people of God, because um, the altars of um, Bethel that is mentioned there, these were the, the unauthorized rogue places of worship. So if you think back to, uh, I believe it's First Kings 12, this is where um, Jeroboam um, sets up some other um, altars because he's worried about the, the people of God going elsewhere. He wants them to kind of have their own franchise, so to speak, in their backyard. Um, it was only about 10 miles north of Jerusalem, and it had really become this primary religious center. Um, but all along the way, it had been contrary to, to God's intention and where he wanted to locate himself. And so this was almost a, um, a counterfeit house of God, this Bethel. It was not where God desired to be known where, and to be received. And so he says, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And this is a significant image, the horns of the altar. So on the corners of the altar would be a, a vertical protrudence from the altar, which um, served two functions. One was that it served as asylum, actually. It was a safe place. Or you might think of it when you're a kid and you were playing um, tag or capture the flag. You know, there would be home base. 
that place where you could go where you couldn't get tagged. Um, the horns of the altar function that way, and it seems almost kind of silly to us today perhaps, but um, go back to um, in your Old Testament, I think it's First Kings chapter 1, you have this uh, scene of Adonijah, who was like a usurper, a rogue king, who's running away from Solomon, and he goes and he clings to the, the horns of the altar because it was a place of refuge and asylum. But then also what we know it more familiarly as is a place of atonement. This is where the sacrifices were made, the blood is splashed against the altar. And so for God to say, I'm going to punish the altars of Bethel, the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. He's saying, I'm going to render your, um, your rogue places of worship utterly impotent, spiritually speaking. That now there's going to be no forgiveness here. There's going to be no sanctuary. He's cutting off, even as he's taken away, we heard in verse 11, the adversary is going to bring down your defenses, your strongholds. That's the recurring theme here. All the other sources of confidence, all the other places where you have sought to trust, God is taking those right out from under you. And it goes back to that first commandment, like we talked about earlier, that first commandment, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Here, um, the prophet is making explicit that all of their other sins flow out from this first commandment violation, that their faith in God is not right, that they have been worshiping other gods, indeed that they have been worshiping the true God in a way that is not pleasing to him. Everything else comes from that, and so God's going to strike right at the heart of it and take the legs right out from under them. And so then the the striking of the winter houses, the summer houses, the houses of the ivory, these these images of just total luxury that they've been living in, that, right. that flows out of that punishing of the, the first commandment issue. It, it really does center in on that. Pastor Tony, we've got just under two minutes here. I'd like to, to let you either comment on that or, or summarize the morning for us. Yeah, well, just briefly, again, the winter house, summer house, like you said, these are just emblematic of of the the leaders, uh, the religious leaders, the um, people who had been uh, so well off, uh, really um, using their wealth in a way that was not honoring to God, and so it's it's just kind of epitomized by they've got their winter house, they've got their summer house, they've got their houses of ivory. God says all of these would be houses are going to be taken down, but um, just looking more broadly at this whole passage, uh, I don't think it can be said enough that here as we go to this law court, it points us to Jesus. I mean, uh, the best thing that can be said about a text like this is it leaves you needing some gospel. And we might um, shrink back from that. I commend you, Pastor Apple, and um, leading us to this book of Amos. Surely it would be um, easier for us to go to a Romans or a Galatians, and we want to study those too. But really in reflecting on these prophecies um, from the uh, Lord through Amos, through Jeremiah, through Micah, through all of these great writers of the Old Testament, we understand why Jesus was and is so necessary. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. But in him, we are righteous, made holy, and free. Pastor Ryan Tanetti is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Pastor Tanetti, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our advocate, the one who speaks on our behalf in the law court, so that we are not declared guilty, but as a gift by His grace, we are declared righteous in Him. It's a joy to stand in that court with you, declared righteous with you by His grace. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <music>